You know, every week it seems that there are things vying for our attention. You know what I'm saying? Every week there are things begging for our active involvement. This past week, the spotlight was on the gubernatorial race just down the, the street of Virginia. The Democratic and Republican candidates duking it out in a closely contested race. But some of us who lived there were pressed to vote in a certain way. Others of us who don't live there were nonetheless constantly reminded how crucial this election was and how it demanded our active attention. Hmm. Still others had our minds called to action this week as it regards to the crisis in the global climate change. A world conference began last week attended by leaders from across the globe to discuss ways to limit global warming. What they as leaders and we as citizens can do to slow the warming of the Earth's temperature and the effects of it. National and international events grab the headlines, vying to grab our engagement. And that's fine to give some time to seeking political change and to preserving the environment. Both are from God, politics and the environment. But how, have you noticed how often the seemingly big things, the national and international things, are what we're called to take note of, to take up a cause for, to work hard for, while the more ordinary, mundane things are minimized. We all get swept up into it, looking outward at what's out there and what I need to do to effect some change while overlooking the many opportunities and responsibilities closest to us that we are commanded to look after. Well, in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul helps to reorient our focus. It's fine to look out there and see how you can help. But first, look in here and see how you can help. Localize your lenses and focus on how to help your family and your church members. Those other things are fine, but these things are first. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 together. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 992, I believe. First Timothy chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says this. Do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, 
and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll widows for refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Well, some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, here's what I think is the, the, the main point of these 16 verses. The main point of our passage this morning. God's people are to show their godliness in their care for their spiritual and physical families. God's people are to show their godliness in their care for their spiritual and physical families. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts on two points, two responsibilities for us as God's people. Number one, encourage the saints. We see that in verses one and two. And number two, care for widows. We see that in verses three through 16. Not a very creative or oratorically appealing outline, but I hope one that you see clearly in the text, right? Number one, encourage the saints. And number two, care for widows. Point number one, encourage the saints. Paul, in this letter, has been instructing Timothy specifically, and more broadly, the church he's at in Ephesus, on how they are to live together. We've looked at several times the kind of main purpose statement for the letter that we find in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And Paul says, I am writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And Paul wants these believers to live godly lives together and has written to instruct them clearly on what these godly lives look like. And so while some dismiss Paul as hard to understand. That's not really what we've seen in this book, is it? There have been very clear instructions. Maybe hard to obey in our own strength, but not hard to decipher. 
In the passage we looked at last week, Paul told Timothy and the church that they were to train to live godly lives. Amen. With Timothy being an exemplary model, he, though a younger man, probably in his mid-30s, was nonetheless to be an example to the church in speech and in conduct and in faith and in love and in purity. Hmm. Well, here in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul continues to give Timothy a charge on what this exemplary life is to look like as it pertains to interactions with several members of the covenant community of the church. He tells Timothy in verses 1 and 2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. The charge is especially poignant in Timothy's case because, again, he's younger but has been given authority. He was left in Ephesus by Paul to teach the church, to command them to live a certain way. But you know how it is when you get a little power, don't you? You can easily turn into a tyrant. You get a promotion, and the people who were formerly your co-workers to work with become your minions who work for you. You get a position at church. And folks you used to love and support through trials and failures suddenly become spiritual bums that you must whip into shape. It's a temptation we all face when a little power meets a lot of pride. And it's especially combustible when power and pride mixed with youthfulness. My way must be the right way. All you old folks' way must be the wrong way. But even if that's true sometimes, there's a wrong way to communicate the right thing that young people myself included, sometimes ignore. Paul says to Timothy here, don't do that. Don't rebuke an older man. Don't sharply criticize. Don't strike with your words. Don't express strong disagreement to the point of punishing him with your words. That's not how you should engage an older man in the church. They are older than you. And so demand a certain respect. Even if you're more spiritually mature, which Timothy, in all likelihood, probably was to many of the church's members. Remember, he was to be a model for others. He was the personal companion of the Apostle Paul, the one Paul himself called a true child in the faith. His doctrine and life were probably par excellence. But if he was meeting with an older man in the church and the older man shared an inaccurate interpretation of a certain scripture or a misapplication of it in his life, Timothy's task wasn't to instantly pin him to the wall to threaten to put him out the church for his foolishness. But he was to encourage him to treat him not as a foe, but as a father. Now, it's important to note, this is not how Timothy is to treat everybody 
Right? This is how Timothy is to treat ordinary believers in the church. This is not how he is to treat the, the false teachers or those who followed after them. Amen. A sharp rebuke may sometimes be necessary to those who strayed or are straying from the faith. But normally, most ordinarily, this is how we ought to treat people in the church struggling with sin and discouragement, clinging to Christ, fighting in the faith. Don't rebuke them, but encourage them. It's the way Timothy is to relate not only to older men, but younger men as well. People in his own age range and younger. Not treating them as lesser than him, but coming alongside them as brothers. Verse 2 says, neither is Timothy to rebuke older women, but encourage them as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. You notice here how diverse God's church is? It's made up of different genders and different generations. There are men and women, older people and younger people. The Lord through the preaching of the gospel, brings all kinds of people together. Amen. Jesus didn't just die for men to be saved. He laid down his life and picked it up again for women to be saved as well. Amen. So that's why we reject extra-biblical books such as the so-called Gospel of Thomas, which says things like, women must become males to enter the kingdom of heaven. No place in the Bible says that. In no place in the Bible is salvation exclusively for men. Amen. Nor is it only for old people who just need something to hope for later in life. And so they'll take Jesus as their spiritual medicine. And neither is salvation solely for young people, energetic and gullible enough to believe anything. No, salvation is for all kinds of people. Men and women, old and young. In front of you here this morning, and you're not a Christian, salvation is for you. Amen. And what qualifies you for salvation is not your age or your gender. It's what you share in common with all of us. Amen. It's your sin. Amen. Your rebellion against God in thought and in word and in deed. Your sins against God have separated you from God. But there's hope because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners Amen. of all types. He lived perfectly for us and died on the cross in our place. He rose three days later as conqueror and king and commands us all to turn from sin and turn to him for salvation. Amen. A salvation that could be yours today, right now, if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. We don't have an altar call down, down here at, at the aisle that you got to walk down to become a Christian. All right? But we do want you to come to know King Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. If you want to know more about what that looks like, you can talk to anyone around you. You can come find me at the door after service. We'd love to talk to you more about turning your life to King Jesus. God saves all kinds of people through his son. And he brings us all together in the church, male and female, old and young. Notice how diverse the church is. But secondly, notice 
in these two verses that, that no difference in gender and age. The church is one family. And notice the familial terms highlighted throughout. Treat older men as fathers. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. As Paul said earlier, the church is the household of God. The family of God. And he wants us to act like what we are. Family. That means we don't tear each other down by our words, but build each other up. We encourage, which just simply means to put in courage, to strengthen. We exhort one another to keep running the race in Christ, to keep fighting the faith, to keep saying no to sin and yes to God. Encouragement is often the food that feeds endurance and hope. The encouragement of the scriptures and the encouragement of the saints helps us to endure in this life now, having our hope set on Christ and the life that is ours to come. Encouragement is needed both to be received and given. But it can be hard to give encouragement, can't it? Because for many of us, discouragement is our default. Yes. It's what we've seen in our homes growing up. It's what we experience at the jobs that we work at. It's what we've seen in churches we've attended. A model of bashing and belittling, downing achievements, overlooking progress, shaming when there are setbacks, critiquing every move. It's what we've seen modeled, and so in turn, it's what we model. I mean, think of your own life. Uh, what's your first instinct when someone shares something with you? Is it to put down or to build up? When you're asked your opinion or your thought on something, are you known more for negatively criticizing or being positively constructive? I know the temptation here is to think about other people who do that to you. Mm. But think deeply and widely in your own life. As it relates to your family members, to your church members, to your classmates or teammates, Amen. what characterizes your interactions? Mm. When you want to see change effected in someone's life, what is it that you lead with? Is it what they're not doing enough of now? Why they suck at it and, and, and why they're failing, why they're wrong? Or is it the support to help steer them in the right direction? The encouragement to, with the Lord's help, change, do better, grow. Which do you respond better to? Constant criticism and discouragement? Or godly encouragement? Isn't it the latter? Encouragement? I mean, perhaps we've all sat in services and maybe some of us even given sermons where a change is desired. But the way to produce that change was through the path of put down. And so perhaps there's a sermon where prayer is highlighted. 
Maybe just something like what we'll see later in this passage where certain sisters are commended for praying night and day. And so the pastor goes off. They pray all the time. We can't get some of y'all to pray at any time. Y'all don't pray when you wake up. Don't pray when you go to sleep. And you sure don't pray in prayer service because most of y'all don't show up. And yet you call yourself a Christian. Christians pray all the time, night and day. You must not be a Christian because you don't pray. You ever heard a sermon like that? The goal is a good one. To get people to pray more. But the only vehicle some of us know to move people to spiritual growth is discouragement. But it rarely works. It rarely works. It shames people. But it rarely changes them. But think about how encouragement can be used for the same purpose of seeing people grow in prayer. Using the same passage, you might say, these sisters prayed night and day. Amen. Isn't that amazing? That because of what Christ has done for us, we have unlimited access to God. We can go to him and talk with him at any time. And he's never annoyed. He doesn't get mad that we knock on his door late at night. We can never wake God too early. He wants to hear from his children all the time and tells us to come. So saints, come, pray to your heavenly father night and day, privately and corporately, so that the Lord might hear from you. Amen. That's not putting a positive spin on the negative example. That's aiming to do spiritual good, to see spiritual fruit through genuinely encouraging God's people from God's word. Amen. That's what we're all called to do in the family of faith. Encourage our spiritual brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in Christ. Amen. So who might you encourage today in Jesus? Who do you know among us who is struggling? Who could use a word of encouragement? So the answer is all of us. So reach out with an aim, not to flatter by saying untrue things, but to express true things. Ways you've seen Christ at work in them. Ways God is calling us all to live a, a life with his glory and how we're on the path with them and joyfully so. And even if there's something you feel like you need to correct, you can do that through encouragement rather than criticism. Think of Acts chapter 18 verses 26 and 27. Priscilla and Aquila here, Apollo's preaching, and he's preaching okay, but he's saying some off things. But they didn't immediately blast Apollos for not fully knowing enough as he preached. The text tells us that they tenderly pulled him aside after him and explained to him the word of God more accurately. And when he wished to, to go to Achaia, they encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to accept him. I can think of a few uh, times over the years in my own life when I experienced the same kind of thing in the life of our church. On a couple of occasions I can remember, our brother Chris has, has tenderly pulled me aside after being too critical of my wife. 
too harsh to, to some members in tone. And pulled me to the side in, in a Chris-like fashion, waited a few days, made a phone call, and, and, and relayed where he thought there was sin. He encouraged me to be more encouraging to both my wife and to the sheep. Now, why did he do that? It wasn't to show me up. It wasn't to, to, to show himself to be superior. He did it because he's my brother. And he loves me. And the language that love often speaks is encouragement to family members. Encouragement to change, to strengthen us, to call us to godliness. Now before we jump in these verses, I do want us to, to draw our focus intentionally for a minute on how Paul instructs Timothy to encourage women in the church. To encourage older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. That last phrase, in all purity, probably means sexual purity. And Paul is not blind to the fact that when men and women interact, there can be a temptation to cross the lines, to engage in sexual sin, whether that's with lustful thoughts or lustful actions. And so he charges Timothy to be above board here sexually. But, but notice, that doesn't mean that he's to abandon his responsibility to, to care for women. We aren't to view women solely as sexual beings whose presence we need to avoid for fear they might bring us down. Amen. Our sisters are spiritual beings whom God has put together with us so that we might engage and encourage each other in the faith. Amen. It's a sad thing to see in some churches and institutions the sisters spiritually impoverished for the supposed sake of keeping brothers sexually pure. Pastors don't meaningfully interact with or engage sisters. Brothers don't talk with sisters about spiritual matters because they're trying their best to keep some distance. Now, I'm not against setting up some guards to protect your purity. That's wise. I try to do that in a number of ways in my life. But if that means that you can't interact with any woman in any setting at any time, then the person who needs to grow is you in restraint and in self-control. You need to grow as a Christian because as a Christian, one of your duties is to love and encourage other Christians, male and female, to care for them as what they really are, family. Since we want to be a church, where every member is spiritually engaged and encouraged, whether black or white, male or female, old or young. But that only happens as every member engages and encourages, whether you're black or white, male or female, old or young. Every one of us is called to care for every one of our spiritual families by using our lives and our lips to encourage them. Amen. But in the rest of this passage, Paul narrows his care down, specifically to a subset of the larger congregation who needs special attention and care, to widows. And so our second point, and Paul's second charge to us, is to care for widows. 
Point number two, care for widows. I think we see here the remaining verses, two kind of subsections. The first section from verses four to eight talks more about an individual believer's care for widows and their family. And then the second section from verses nine through 15 talks about the, the, the qualities that widows to be cared for, what, what qualifies widows to be cared for in the church. All right, so kind of two subsections and then two kind of main verses that hold them together. Verse three serves as kind of a theme sentence and then verse 16 is a kind of a summary sentence. So, so look there at verse three. Paul says, honor widows who truly are widows. Now, that's the basic broad command. Our Christians are to honor, care for, support widows. Now Paul will get into what he means by those who are truly widows in a minute. He'll give some criteria. But the basic charge for Christians is to care for widows. Women who have lost their Husbands and have become vulnerable in society. James says in James chapter 1, verse 27, that true religion is to visit orphans and widows. And in Acts chapter 6, we see the church in Jerusalem providing for widows. In fact, the controversy breaks out when some of the widows aren't cared for. But notice how Paul immediately follows up this broad command to honor widows which I think is for the entire church at large, with a more narrow charge to Christians in their families. He says in verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. The church's care for widows is a second line of provision. The first line of responsibility lays on a widow's children and grandchildren. You know, the ones she spent decades providing for, caring for, looking after, cooking for, changing diapers, watching when they're sick, taking the doctor's appointments. Those same children and grandchildren who've been the recipients of mom's or grandma's loving care for so long now have the responsibility and really the privileged duty to make some return, to pay back a portion of all they've gained once mom and grandma need help. According to USDA, it costs approximately $234,000 to raise a child through the age of 17. Now that figure doesn't include college tuition, neither does it include the incalculable value of a parent's presence in the home, of their love, their support, their guidance. All that is a personal and sacrificial investment in you. And according to the Bible here, parents should expect a return on their investment. Specifically here for a child to do whatever is needed to care for a widowed mother or grandmother. And notice what Paul labels this kind of return. A demonstration of godliness. Godliness isn't just some spiritual or mysterious spiritual state or some invisible spiritual attribute. 
No godliness shows up in your life. Mm. And it's not just showing how much you read the Bible. All right. How much scripture you can quote from memory. Amen. How often you pray. You can do all those things and not be godly. Amen. Paul says godliness is demonstrated by the practical care for your family. This charge here for children and grandchildren to honor and provide for their widowed mothers and grandmothers is one way that adult children obey the fifth commandment to honor our mothers and our fathers. We're no longer under their roofs and committed to obeying every single one of their rules. But we honor them now through providing for and protecting them. The Pharisees thought they were very spiritual. But Jesus considered them spiritually evil. Why? Because they rejected the scriptures and followed their own traditions, specifically regarding caring for their parents. In Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, Jesus told them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Amen. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. That is, it's given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. The Pharisees set up their own standard of righteousness, not giving anything to their parents. Instead saying that what would have been given had instead been given to God. Now that sounds godly, doesn't it? But it's not. Because again, Paul says that godliness is caring for your parents, for their needs, for their wants, looking out for widows in your family. And what is the result of such care? Well, we'll look there at the end of verse 4. It pleases God. He sees what we are doing at every step. Don't you want to be doing what is pleasing in his sights? In verse 5, uh, Paul finally lays out what he means by those who are truly widows. Namely, those who are left all alone, who have no family in this life to care for them. And so those are the ones that the church then should step in and provide for. Widows without any provision from anyone else. But notice what these widows, who have nothing on this earth, do. They set their hope on God. They look to him to provide. They call out to him in prayer night and day. What a picture that is. Though left alone, never alone. Because they have God. Amen. Though in one sense, having no one to help. On the other, having a relationship with the only one who can help. Amen. The Lord himself. And crying out to him. Perhaps what these widows' prayers were fueled by were verses like the one Adam read for us earlier in Psalm chapter 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourner 
And he upholds the widow and the fatherless. They believed God's word. They hoped in him to help, to uphold them. And God does that through his people. Amen. Those are the ones whom the church is responsible to care for, those who are truly widows. But they're contrasted in verse 6 by another kind of, of widow. One who doesn't set her hope on God, but is self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. Now that her husband's gone, she can finally live life up. Mm. She lives for herself to spend on herself. The church is not to be responsible for her care. For while she thinks she's living her best life, off the support of others, Paul says she's really dead. That's an important reminder for all of us. You can be full of physical life and yet at the same time spiritually dead and thus eternally ruined. Is that you? Are you here this morning looking good? Oh, y'all do. Feeling good, but spiritually dead in your sins? And soon to meet an eternal death in hell? That's what's sure to happen to all of us who live life now only to serve ourselves and not in service of the Lord. Turn to him today. That you might not only have physical life in this world, but spiritual life that guarantees life in a world to come. Paul charges Timothy in verse 7 to command these things so that they might be without reproach. The these things is a reference to everything in verses 3 through 6. And I think particularly to the charge for family members to care for widows in their families. To know that they are the ones responsible for them. So they know that the church is a second line only when the family is not around. And even then, the church only provides for a certain kind of widow, a godly one. Paul wants Christians to be blameless in parental and familial care, to be above reproach. But he says in verse 8, if one does not provide for his relatives, especially or namely those of his own household, those most immediately close to him. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What? For not providing for our relatives? Denying the faith? Really, Paul? I mean, I still believe the Trinity. Still believe in justification by faith alone still believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I'm affirming the faith. Oh, well, well, yes, with your lips, maybe. Mm. But denying it with your life. Mm. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I command? Mm. You can have the right doctrine the right profession. But do you have the right practice of that profession? I mean, unbelievers even instinctively take care of their widow parents. They have the law of God written on their hearts. They consciously know what's right and what's wrong. They care for their elder members of their families. How much more then should believers 
who've been regenerated and given a new heart, who've experienced the inestimable gift of salvation in Christ to provide for our greatest need. How much more then should we give to support the needs of needy widows in our families? Have you been negligent in this area? Have you overlooked the care for parents and grandparents? I was even struck, weighted down this, this, this week, studying this passage. We, we fall short of these things. But we don't want to be burdened with, with guilt. We should confess our sins, repent of them, and go and sin no, no more. Go be the provider to those in your family that the Lord has called you to. Now, that doesn't mean you just indiscriminately give to any and every family member who asks for help. Amen. Sometimes the greatest help you can give is to encourage them to go get a job Amen. and support Amen. themselves. Amen. Well, this passage is talking about those who can't provide for themselves. Amen. Their main support of help came from their husbands. But now they're dead. But while the children and grandchildren are still alive, let them provide. So the church won't have to. Don't blame the church for not doing enough. Amen. Don't blame the church for not doing what you as a family member should be doing. Amen. Caring for the widows and those most vulnerable and in need in your family. But there are cases where the church must and should provide and take care of widows. And in the remaining verses of this passage, Paul spells out some qualifications for those instances. In verses 9 and 10, positively, Paul says which widows should be helped. Look there at verse 9. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. It's obvious here that the church had some order. There was a list of known widows who the church vowed to care for. You know, I think this is a subtle, implicit reference to church membership. The church is not just some social organization that does good to everyone in society. Amen. The church is the family of God made up of family members whose lives they can observe and know. And to whom they've made commitments to care for. Amen. I mean, Paul's instructions for which widows should receive care are based on the church's deep knowledge of them. These qualifications that he listed weren't given on a checklist that an applicant would fill out and just hand to the person at the front door when they came. No, these were qualifications that other members could attest to about these widowed members because of the close access that they had to their lives as members of the same local body. Mm. A widow had to be over the age of 60, which in the first century was the age considered to be old. The age that past 60, women probably wouldn't remarry. She had to be the wife of one husband. Mm. Similar statement to the one we mm. saw in chapter three about elders and deacons being the husbands of one wife. Right, basically she used to be a one man woman. Not that she could not have more than one husband, maybe two, three husbands, because multiple of them died. 
Right? Paul later commends remarriage for some widows. So it's not that she never was married before, but that she was faithful to the husband that she had. And she had to be known for good works, being hospitable to the saints, washing their feet, an act of humble service to guests in a home. She had to have cared for the afflicted and suffering, devoted herself to good works in every area of life. She was a model of true godliness. You know, Paul often gets tagged by many in our society as, as, as a hater of women, as being misogynistic. I think it partly comes as a result of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We assume that the way that we think about things is superior to those in the past. And so we value our ways and our thoughts while criticizing or ignoring those of years before. And so we read our values into Paul's writings, into the scriptures where, where Paul says women should learn without causing disruption in the church. Or that they shouldn't have authority or teach over men in the gathered assembly. Shouldn't serve as pastors. We interpret those things through our 21st century lens as wrong, as pig-headed, as discriminatory. But in the first century, that Paul advocated women learning, having their minds and their hearts actively engaged and valued was revolutionary. That he thought that a woman's spiritual beauty was what was most commendable. Not simply her passing physical beauty was a novel idea. Here, that he considers certain widows as models of godliness and Christian maturity. Setting their hope on God, praying night and day, serving the saints faithfully, setting an example for the entire church. This was a radical thing. Women as models for all of us to follow? Yes, Paul says. Push out of your mind that Paul puts women down. It's just not true. When you read the Bible, don't read through the grid of your expectations or our culture's expectations. Read it as God's authoritative, unfolding words of life to you. Amen. As you read, don't grow more suspicious of the scriptures. Grow more suspicious of your suspicions. Paul lifts up these sisters and says that they are worthy of the church's ongoing support probably until death, to care for and provide for all their needs because of the way they lived their lives before the church. Amen. But in verses 11 through 15, Paul outlines more in detail the women who should not be enrolled in the church's official care list for widows. Refuse those widows, he says in verse 11, who are younger, or probably younger than the age of 60 that he just mentioned. Because when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned the faith. A younger woman is more prone to remarry and, and thus not need to care, uh, the church to care for her. Which Paul says in verse 14 is fine. And he says there, I would have younger widow, widow, widows remarry. But why hear the seemingly negative view of remarrying? Saying a younger widow's passions draw them away 
from Christ. I mean, Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if your passions are burning, if your sexual desires are increasing, then it's better to marry than burn with passion. But here it seems those passions have taken control. And though not explicitly mentioned, I think probably led these women to marry people who they shouldn't marry. Unbelievers. Their passions draw them away from Jesus. Away from submitting to him and his word. And lead them to following after a man who is not a follower of Christ. Which often leads them to no longer themselves following Christ. And the result, verse 12, they incur condemnation, judgment for abandoning their former faith. There's an implicit warning here. Don't settle. Far better to stay a widow or stay single and be devoted to the Lord than to marry an unbeliever and be devoted to the devil and destined for judgment. Are you willing to burn in hell forever to satisfy the burning desires of your body now? Saints, that is not a good trade-off. Paul goes on to talk about another of the temptations that these younger widows are prone to if the church supports them too early in life. In verse 13, he says they learn to be idle and not using their time wisely or productively working. Instead, living off the church's support, they go from house to house, free, gossiping and being busybodies, saying things they should not say. They in everybody's business, talking about everybody's business. They got too much time on their hands. And probably were helping to spread the message of the false teachers. Remember in, in chapter 4 what the false teachers were, were teaching. They were forbidding marriage. And so these younger widows probably followed their advice. Not remarrying and, and instead of roaming around talking about how free they are. How wonderful it is. How their status is superior to those women over there married to those guys. And Paul says what they need is not the church's support for life. What they need is to go ahead and fill their time productively. Verse 14, a younger widow, if she can't control her body and can't control her tongue and can't control her time, should generally remarry, bear children, manage her home, follow what the Bible says are good things for a woman, not following the false teachers who say that marriage and bearing children and other things are ungodly or unclean or unpure. No, follow what the Bible says, Paul said. So that they would have no time for, the sat for Satan, for the adversary, to lead them away to slander. Paul doesn't want there to be any mark on the church. Any reason for people to look down on her. Look at what they support. They give money so these women can, can do life and do nothing with their lives but to stir up trouble and controversy. No, Paul says don't give the devil any foothold. Any room to wreak havoc. Some have already strayed after him, Paul warns in verse 15. But you should stunt Satan's work in leading people astray by not supporting those who are following down his path. 
just expecting that the church is to care for them because I'm a widow. Or not caring at all about the church themselves. Paul says, don't do it. He ends in verse 16 with a summary of this entire passage. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Again here, just, just notice how a believing woman is highlighted as a model for the entire church. And with the general principle of this passage restated, Christians have the first and primary responsibility to care for their relatives, their family members who are widows. We show that we are Christians partly by our care for those God has put in our families, Amen. by our provision for them. And in doing so, we free the church up to do its work, to have the funds and the resources to care for those who are truly widows, who have no other help, who lean on the Lord and whom the Lord provides for through his church. Christians show our godliness through our care for our families, for our spiritual brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, and for our physical brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, to our family members who are in need. May the Lord grant us faithfulness that we might carry out and extend his loving care to others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your care for us. Thank you for your instruction to us through your word. Lord, we pray, Lord, as, that as we are convicted to live more faithfully for you, that you would give us courage, encourage us through the word and through your people uh, to work hard for you, Lord. We thank you that we are yours and that, Lord, you use us as your means to care for others. Help us to faithfully do that well to the members of our family and members of our church for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name, the Messiah who saves us and who loves us.